Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, Julie shares her winding path from studying biomedical ethics at Cornell to getting her MBA at Columbia, to joining McKinsey as a health specialist, to her stint in investment banking at Lazard as an associate. Listen to hear about her triumphs and struggles as she navigated a move to London to join the venture arm of a large biopharma company, to her move back to the States five years later, all while starting a family. Enjoy. Julie, thanks so much for joining the Wall Street Oasis podcast. My pleasure. So I'm be, glad you put this together. It'd be awesome if you could just give the listeners a short summary of your bio. Sure. I'll, um, I consider myself a health care uh, ex- expert, business person primarily, but with a long interest in healthcare so, since before college. Um, also known as a, you know, not a doctor, but like to play one on TV and at home. I um, had always had an interest in business and medicine and started at Cornell with a major in biomedical ethics, then went on to, uh, to work for companies that combined the two, went to business school at Columbia, um, and then worked for um, McKinsey as a consultant really specializing in healthcare. They had a a specialist track and worked. I was very fortunate to work with a partner who um, had a lot of work in the healthcare space, particularly with pharmaceutical companies. He left McKinsey to go to Lazard and start a healthcare practice or build upon a very nascent one. So I went to work with him. That was a great move for a variety of reasons. And I think not everybody suits the sort of investment banking culture or the consulting culture, but for me, it was a very good move. Um, and for him as well, he's now co-chairman of Lazard and, um, and remains a very good f- friend to me and the family. Um, left there, uh, was very fortunate that they had um, started a venture group at Lazard. So I spent a year kind of dipping my toe in the water because I'd always had an itch for doing something in biotech and startups. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then left there to run a dot-com for a year in London um, out of SoftBank Incubator and then left there missing healthcare. And so I went to the Wellcome Trust and helped them organize and invest in healthcare in a more systematic way. Uh, the Wellcome Trust is a very active investor uh, 26 billion pounds under management at the time that I was there. And I spent 10 years um, building up a healthcare investment practice for them, doing direct investments into startup companies and investing in funds as well. Very cool. So 
And you were there for a, a while. You had a long run there in London. Yes, 10 years. And yeah. then came back to the U.S. and worked at two healthcare information startups where I was a co-founder and really had a blast. So now I'm on my third uh, more entrepreneurial venture, and I'm happy to talk about that. Awesome. Let's go all the way back before we get there, all the way to undergrad. And so you said you were always interested in healthcare, but was was consulting ever on the horizon? Did you ever think, oh, you know, McKinsey, this is incredible if I could get there? Or was it something more that you just kind of happened upon after graduation? Um, that was more after graduation and after a series of consulting experiences, one uh, right out of college with the Wilkerson Group. Uh, the Wilkerson Group was a small consulting firm. They consult. They called themselves the McKinsey of Healthcare. Okay. And um, at the time, I grew up in a family where my, my mother was in education, had been a teacher and administrator, and my father was more entrepreneurial in the insurance sector. Mm-hmm. And we, uh, we didn't really rub elbows with people who worked at places like McKinsey. Mm-hmm. So we, uh, I didn't know anything about that end of bu- the business world. I didn't have friends or family who had MBAs, so uh, most of them were more from uh, doctors and lawyers sectors, and um, and had more professional track careers. So, so your, first, so your first few years out of school, like you're in, you're, you're majoring in biomedical ethics. What's your first few roles out of school, or was there, or did you go straight to the MBA pretty fast? Um, well, so I was um, I was able to get a job um, over the summer with a company that specialized in an aspect of healthcare. They um, were based out of New Haven mm-hmm. um, and formed based on research that was done at Yale on um, how to reimburse for healthcare. And that company was very small, niche player that mm-hmm. um, did coding for healthcare procedures. And so they they published these books, which we still rely on very heavily. Um, so. I was getting to know how healthcare works and in terms of mechanics and went from there to um, the Wilkerson group at right out of college. Mm-hmm. And um, that was sort of the, as I, I described it, they coined it the McKinsey of healthcare and did, learned a little bit about was a, business. Was there a mentor that was like, you should definitely go get an MBA? Um, no, in fact, there was quite the opposite. So John Wilkerson, who uh, ran the Wilkerson Group and happened to also be a Cornelian, um, was very much a mentor to me and encouraged me to do some work while I was um, while I was working there for the company at a, a corporate level, helping with PR. Um, because while we served clients, um, primarily pharmaceutical, biotech, and medical device companies in terms of strategy and market research, um, which could get very technical, we, um, as a firm, needed to elevate our reputation. And uh, so I periodically would be assigned to do research that would get published either in the news or um, maybe in a publication. We did um, we did collaborative publications with banks and uh, accounting firms that like to do overviews of the biotech sector, for example. And um, I did a report for the Wall Street Journal, which was um, sort of the anatomy of a hospital bill. Um, and you know, 20 years later, they did the same article with the same research <laughs> and it still looks insane. Um, but, but that was really the experience base. So it was a little bit broader than just serving clients. I was you know, very much in love with healthcare, um, but wanted to get an MBA because I felt that I needed more credibility 
in the business world. So I went to Columbia and continued to work for the Wilkerson Group on a part-time basis because they were in Manhattan, which was really partly what drove my decision to go to Columbia. Mm -hmm. Then while I was there, um, just kind of got through and... Um, were you partly financing your MBA with the Wilkerson with it as well? Yeah, I was trying. Yeah, it was a combination of... Um, Expensive loans and, uh, and, and jobs, you know, yeah. piecing it all together. And in fact, I had explored the uh, executive MBA option, mm -hmm. which was a popular thing at NYU and Columbia offered one as well. But it was really popular for the banks, which had lots of money to pay for people to get an MBA. But this is a relatively small consulting firm at the time. They eventually were sold to IBM. But that firm wasn't in a position to pay for me to get an MBA. And in fact, the executive MBA program was double the price for really no reason other right. than the luxury of being able to take night classes, which didn't really appeal anyway. So mm -hmm. they're very flexible. I got to sort of keep, keep, um, you know, keep a, a hand in what was happening in industry and mm -hmm. make some money. And when I left, um, went to work for, um, for the biotech division of Johnson and Johnson as an intern first for a summer and then kind of extended that into a job. And ultimately um, after that got, um, got a job at a startup biotech company, which was what I really and thought is, I wanted. This is right out of Columbia. This is their year MBA. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a fun, you know, story for, for those who are exploring. I had an excellent professor, um, professor Lowe at, um, at Columbia mm -hmm. who taught strategy and I spoke to him, you know, you can just picture this, right? We're in a, a sort of library ish setting with big leather chairs at the business school. And I said, I'm not really sure I should go to this biotech startup. I mean, they have some venture money. It's there are only three people working there and some R and D based in Israel. Um, I could go work for Johnson & Johnson, continue this role that I had as an intern, and start on a management training path. What do you think? And his advice was, well, what's the worst thing that happens if you take the riskier job? You could be back here talking to me about the next thing, but at, at least you would have tried. And so he really encouraged me to go for that, um, which I did six or eight months later. Um, out of desperation because the person I worked for was really challenging. <laughs> um, I, I decided that maybe I could do something else. And I responded to an ad in the Wall Street Journal for a job for a healthcare specialist at McKinsey. Interesting. And, so you found the ad through the Wall Street Journal. Yes. That's awesome. And so you, you responded to an ad there and tell me what that process was like where, so first off that it sounds like it was a, start up with three people, you just don't never know what you're going to get. It could be a dream job and skyrocketed career and everything, or it can be a nightmare where you don't know what the person is really like um, once you start working with them. And so, yeah, we've, we've all had those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so you, you end up applying to this, uh, this uh, healthcare specialist. What is this role and how, how did they sell it to you? And what was the interview process like to get into McKinsey? Well, it turned out that there was just a really good fit between what I had done um, primarily at the Wilkerson Group. And mm -hmm. um, after that, um, you know, there was very little in between other than business school. Um, and 
and what they wanted. They were looking for someone in the specialist role in that track that they have at McKinsey, which I'm sure has, has changed quite a bit since then. They have specialists in different industries who provide guidance to teams that are serving clients. Mm -hmm. They have to remain somewhat neutral, but they also have to have mastery over the subject matter, the sort of industry uh, dynamics, and they kind of act like a tutor because um, McKinsey's philosophy was to hire people with what they called raw smarts. And sometimes those people were rocket scientists, literally, and sometimes um, physicians, but sometimes they were just very bright, motivated Harvard MBAs who knew absolutely nothing about the client that they were going to serve. So you'd provide primers, and uh, I worked with a small team, including a specialized librarian and a, a researcher in Switzerland, and we we would put together educational materials, both mm -hmm. for a specific client uh, or situation and for the firm in general. And we would run twice a year, we would run international training sessions for people who like doing healthcare care or had a lot of healthcare clients. So these types um, of roles, specialist roles within the, the consult large consulting companies, are they typically, is there one for like how many, is there a lot of these roles or are they very kind of, is there only like a handful of, of, well, it's more like a you know a handful, but yeah. they you know they can have some infrastructure or something like that or yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, I couldn't I couldn't put a number on it, but it's probably twenty to thirty. It just depends on um, the industry too. But um, people have taken on I think as um, as the world has become more complex, people have specialized more. Um, because you need a certain amount of uh, at least language to to go into a client and they don't want to waste their time teaching you about their industry right so or their situation and you know it could extend from uh, an R&D strategy to a Salesforce strategy so you could really be all over the map yeah. even just within healthcare and I was only in the pharma biotech and medical device sector sector as opposed to payer provider which had a different team and a different specialist. I have Super to say, complex. you know, yeah. <laughs> it was a fantastic experience, despite the fact that when I arrived there, I discovered that the specialist track was also called the mommy track. And there was some, oh, really? okay. yes, there was some sort of, you know, status issue there. Um, but you weren't, were a, a you weren't a strategy consultant. You were just a specialist that would come in and it was, it wasn't considered like you're not client facing. Right. Exactly. Support role. Um, yeah. So yeah. there was that issue. But because of the fact that a lot of people had transitioned into a specialist role for lifestyle reasons, there were a lot of people who were highly respected in a client facing role who had then shifted into a support role or a specialist role. And some of them maintained client facing experience at times. Mm -hmm. um, I said that I wanted more client facing experience. So I got a little bit mm -hmm. along the way. Um, but I benefited from the rigor of how things are done there um, and made some amazing connections, which I still, um, I still benefit from today. So the two startups that I worked at most recently or when I returned from London, uh, one of them was run by uh, the head of the healthcare practice at McKinsey when I was there. Mm -hmm. uh, his name is Norman Selby. Mm -hmm. And just a couple of years ago, he spun out a company from Sloan Kettering and called and asked me to help him with the, the strategy and business planning and the pitch for that company to raise money. Mm -hmm. And that was a very, uh, very hip uh, fundraising for mm -hmm. Page AI. Um, 
which is in the, the AI space in yep. computational pathology. So, so I'm still friendly with Norman, and he obviously um, had maintained some respect for me along the way, even though I was a specialist. So <laughs> at the end of the day, it worked out just fine. Um, but I think it's always challenging to manage you know, your own ego in these situations. I don't, you know, it's very competitive and very lockstep to get a job at McKinsey as a consultant straight from business school. Mm -hmm. um, at, the, at the time, they recruited from a, a fairly narrow subset of, of schools yeah. and kinds of individuals. So I probably would never have been considered in that track. Um, and this was an amazing experience of weigh in. And I really did have a very deep understanding of how to, how to, do research and um, and what the dynamics were in the the pharmaceutical and biotech industry in particular that um, that I was able to to share and leverage. So um, it's great. So it was it worked out. So your your transition then three years later after joining McKinsey to Lazard, this was mostly because your bot your direct boss went and was starting a practice there. For well, he wasn't my boss in the sense that he was just one of many. Uh, consultants who had a lot of engagements in the industry. So mm -hmm. he was, you know, at um, at a senior level and able to um, specialize and have relationships in, in industry, which he wanted to leverage. And at that time, I think he was trying to progress his career and debated, you know, what the right move was and found that there was a place for him to build something. He has a very entrepreneurial bent. Um, he worked um, starting up some biotech enterprises before and has an engineering background. And it, I think it was just a great move for him personally. And I liked the idea of doing something else a little bit challenging. I was looking for something that I wasn't looking for the lifetime career as um, a specialist at McKinsey. Mm -hmm. uh, that was the beginning. So for me, this was a chance to learn much more about um, other aspects of, uh, of the industry which are really fundamental to their growth. I mean, you can't finance a company. You can't grow without finance. So you're, so you're coming sort of into you're coming into Lazard. Tell me your role. What was what was expected of you coming making that transition from McKinsey to Lazard, and what was your role in that group? Were you doing investment banking? Were you doing you know research support, client support? I'd love to hear what you did there. Well, because I had an MBA from Columbia, I was treated like any other associate. Got so it. I was brought in. Um, as an associate and did training, their program was not as um, formal as it might be at a Goldman Sachs. Um, so it, because it's a relatively small bank. And um, so I, I learned from people around me. I did some training. I took, you know, the required regulatory. Was it, was it really tough? Okay, coming from no finance background. I mean, you had your finance MBA, but it's very different right now right. from the real world, right? It's, completely different. Um, but, you know, I learned a lot along the way. Um, and I think there's, it's like any other profession, there's a language that you have to learn. And um, once you get that, um, if you have the right encouragement, it, it's not that hard. Um, what about the lifestyle change? Because healthcare specialist, you said, was considered a more relaxed and then going not, not just from a consulting to banking, but a, a a supposedly better lifestyle section of consulting, right. a gru the grueling hours of investment banking, especially in an associate level where you don't have the technical background, you're trying to manage analysts, you're trying to manage up to your VPs and MDs. I mean, I can't even imagine that 
that culture okay. shock or that culture shock or that just rigor that you had to go through. Can you tell me about that transition and how you even survived as long as you did? <laughs> yeah. You know what? I think I always liked, liked working hard. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe one of the things that, that made my experience at McKinsey a, a positive one was that I really didn't mind working till all hours and being highly responsive to people. Um, you didn't treat you know, the was, specialist job as if some sort of, you, you really put in long hours anyway, so it wasn't as dramatic a transition to Lazard. Right. Well, I think um, that's that's correct. And also my peer group was more the consultants. So my friends at McKinsey were people who were on the consulting track, traveling a lot, had a really intensive lifestyle, and I wanted to sort of meet them where they were. And so I would respond at any time of day and I kind of enjoyed doing that. I also spent um, a lot of time and energy. I always loved the information technology space and it was at a time just to crack you up when they were adopting Lotus notes. (laughs) So (laughs) yeah. um, Yeah. And, and um, so one of the things that I, sort of took upon myself was to become more sophisticated about how we accessed and deployed information given the the technology backbone we had at McKinsey. And it was really very, you know, it was very evolved because it was McKinsey and that was just how they operated. Mm-hmm. They're very well organized in terms of collecting and disseminating information across an international enterprise. So I, I kind of got spoiled and had a really high standard then for how to do that. And there aren't a lot of companies out there that do that as well as they did. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's a lot easier because of technology, but that was kind of, they always had that vision in mind, which I thought was really cool. So yeah. at Lazard, they had plenty of infrastructure too. It was a little it's bit smaller. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it wasn't as relevant in terms of work style, lifestyle. You know, I, I I, we were a small team. We were, there was just a handful of us. We worked very closely together. Um, I did work from the sort of analyst level all the way up. Um, it was kind of me and me and Steve at the very beginning. And um, so we would just work till all hours when we needed to. And Did you have an um, analyst under you right away or is it, were you no, forced to do all the modeling no. and everything? I did a lot myself and then I worked with analysts who were much better at the technical Mm -hmm. analysis piece or, um, you know, had done it a lot and learned from them because I needed to be able to check work. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was, I was able to rely on them, but I did have to do quite a bit myself. Um, and not all of it came naturally to me. I got to tell you that that was challenging. Yeah, no, for me as well. <laughs> when I started, I came from a little arts background and I had no finance, uh-huh. no accounting, anything. So it was a six months of pain for me when I started. Um, so <laughs> in terms of um, the transition, so Lazard, it sounds like you had a, a few great years. You did, you had some great um, deals that you worked with um, in on the healthcare space. You had some transactions that you got under your belt, it sounds like. Yeah. Is that, and and yeah. then, so what, what prompted in 99, the move out to, uh, to London? The um, let's see. Well, um, you know, I'd had this sort of itch to do something more, um, more startup like, and, um, I had just gotten married and, um, so I'd spent a, a few months or just under a year, uh, working with the venture group that had gotten started at Lazard. Um, so I, I, you know, I kind of asked Steve, do you mind if I go do this for a little bit and try it out? And he, at that time, the group had evolved quite a lot. Um, and 
so I, um, I tried that. It was really interesting. It was the dot-com boom moment. Yeah. And um, I, I learned from a very experienced partner um, and, and then uh, got married right around that time and moved to London because we had an opportunity to do that. My husband you know, had uh, an opportunity to go to go to London with his firm and it sounded was, like was he doing? a great thing to do. Okay. So he was a Goldman actually in okay. real estate. So we both sort of came up from a specialized kind of passion in a particular field. We were yeah. neither one of us was, you know, banker all the way kind of a person. Yeah. I think. Um, and so uh, he ha- had um, always liked traveling. I love to travel. And we said, this sounds like a great opportunity. Let's go do this now. It's mm-hmm. a great way to start a marriage. No family, you know, mucking around. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You're truly alone. Right. Yeah. We traveled all over. Um, I talked to some friends who had been doing um, a lot of web design in New York from a, uh, one of the firms that I had met during the course of my work at Lazard in their venture group, which was not healthcare focused at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh so I, I got introduced to some people in London and ultimately to SoftBank's incubator. Um, so they were starting up an incubator to roll out dot-coms that had been successful in the U.S. that they wanted to roll out in Europe. Mm-hmm. And they had this sort of cookie-cutter approach, which made no sense in some industries and a lot of sense in others. Um, and I was recruited to run law.com, which was um, Wasserstein Perella's American lawyer media.com version. Okay. And that was a, it was a wild ride. Um, that model was based on content that was coming from American lawyer media. So the investor slash owner mm-hmm. owned all that content. Mm-hmm. It was produced and published in journals in the New York law journal and the law yep. journals for 38 States or something and siphoned into a website. Um, so they wanted me to recreate that, but we had no content. So we built a news team and uh, legal, hired legal news reporters, built a strategy around it, tried to syndicate it, um, and uh, built up relationships with some other content players in Europe. And like so this was early, Lord. this is like early 2000 when you were doing all this? Yeah. yeah. So then, I mean, when did, I'm, I'm trying to remember back, was it like 01 when everything started falling apart? And tell me how, it, you were, you were, it sounds like you were pretty heavily involved, even though this was at the head of healthcare investments or this was now a different thing before you, you were in so London. This was before then. It was just one year. And uh, yeah. it was a crazy, incredible experience. I kind yeah. of just showed up, drew out a strategy, had a plan for mm-hmm. you know, $250,000 a quarter we were going to spend. And um, uh, it was probably pounds. And we, um, I worked with the head of the, the enterprise for the U S um, and we tried to build something where there was nothing before. Mm-hmm. And ultimately I kind of went back to the CEO and said, this isn't going to work. The, the model doesn't work. You can't make enough money to keep it afloat. You know, right. advertising like to, isn't going to gonna work. For, yeah. To pay for all the reporters and everything in the, right. the production. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he said, Great. I think I agree with you. And we've been exploring in the U.S. providing legal software online as on an ASP-based platform. And I said, great. And he said, I think we'll acquire a, a business in that area and morph the U.K. enterprise 
to be that kind of a business as well. And so I wrote to the head of um, the Ministry of Science and Health in the UK and said, I'd like to work for an organization like the Wellcome Trust. He was Lord Sainsbury and he was a Columbia Business School grad. Mm-hmm. And out of the, you know, I don't know where I got the idea, but the UK is a lot smaller than the US. I wrote him this letter and I got a call and an invitation to meet with the head of investments at the Wellcome Trust. Mm. And it was a really interesting, I thought it was a pretty interesting path, but what happened was the last work I had done at Lazard happened to be on the merger of Welcome, um, Glaxo, Welcome, and SmithKline. When when the companies merged, so I really knew those portfolios back and forward. Mm -hmm. So I understood every drug in development, what the cost structure looked like, how they were going to keep their EPS up. I had enough fluency in that particular organization to really speak about it. And the head of investments um, at Welcome was dealing with the trustees trying to decide how to reallocate their portfolio. And they were thinking about how they were somewhat overweight in terms of Welcome stock because it was part of the name. So they never wanted to sell Welcome. It, it, it might signal something that they didn't want to signal. But when the, the merger was announced, the, the name Welcome was dropped from the company. It became GlaxoSmithKline. SmithKline, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's funny how these things get, um, get going, but we started with a conversation. He asked me if I could help him evaluate the prospects for the, the stock um, over the next couple of years. They're very long-term focused, but, and they didn't want to do anything dramatic mm-hmm. and they didn't want to hurt the share price of the company. Um, but they wanted to do the right thing for, uh, for the welcome trust for the endowment. Yeah. So I did essentially a buy side assignment. And um, I worked very closely with this gentleman, Gary Steinberg, who was absolutely lovely. And he, um, he and I presented to the trustees of the Welcome Trust um, a recommendation to sell down the shares. And um, it was a right move. I looked like a genius. The stock price was never as high as it was at the time that I made that call. So it just, went, it was, it, it just happened to go in the right direction for them. And um, I also got a, uh, sort of a window into what they were doing in terms of investment strategy. So you're, you were brought in, a lot. so yeah, you were brought in almost like, a, like you said, a buy side engagement where you were responsible of, so the merger had already happened with glass. Yeah. And so welcome was brought into that fold but the name was dropped. So now there was almost like an ability to go sell some of those assets without it hurting the overall entity. Is that the, was that the, exactly. So okay. welcome, the welcome trusts base endowment was, it was formed out of welcome PLC when mm-hmm. it was a, a company taken public. So when, when they, it was the welcome trust actually that sold those shares into the public domain to create the public company, welcome mm-hmm. PLC that company became Glaxo Welcome and then GlaxoSmithKline. Oh and gosh, it wow. had just been, you know, a couple of, like, and know, it was more, was it more earlier? Before. Was it focused more earlier stage life science type um, investments or? What it was, was a combination. They had a pipeline of drugs in development, not preclinical really, mostly okay. clinical stage yep. assets and, um, you know, in different therapeutic areas. And there was, um, I think it was pretty transparent to me and to, I think, to many analysts that they were were 
going to be in a, a mode where there wasn't a lot of opportunity for growth in the existing portfolio and that in order to maintain their um, EPS growth, they would have to, to reorganize. They might be selling down some of their uh, manufacturing plants and things like that, and a lot of which happened. Yep. Um, and so I, I read, so, I'm reading here on your LinkedIn that you built a portfolio of 250 million in healthcare direct investments. So when was that? So you came in, you helped kind of sell off some was, of the assets and then you, it was you basically just, a year of, you yeah. know, what's this stock worth? What, how should we manage it? We spoke to investment bankers about what a sell down process might look like. They approached Glaxo SmithKline to talk about a share buyback program or, you know, uh, a, a drip related transaction where we might structure a way to sell back the shares to them. So, um, so that it wouldn't have a dramatic effect on the share price. Mm -hmm. And, um, while I was there and I was really just doing that as a consulting engagement, Mm -hmm. um, you know, got to know the investment team. There were only about a dozen people there. They were all generalists and yet they had significant stakes in a number of venture funds that were healthcare focused. Mm -hmm. And they had a portfolio of maybe 10 or so companies that they'd been asked to invest in, um, as a venture investor, but they didn't really do any diligence. They just relied on their relationships with those investors. Um, and a, a lot of really high profile healthcare investors. So groups like healthcare ventures and Venrock and um, benchmark and Sequoia who do some healthcare um, really prominent groups that um, knew a lot and have been pretty successful, but um, they weren't really in the business of um, making our portfolio look better. And, on occasion, and I think every venture investor will attest to this, you just need to get some more capital around the table when you have to do a refinancing or um, you know, a down round. Mm-hmm. You might call upon the people who are your LPs and have some extra capital to help keep those, uh, those programs going if you think that, you know, if you don't want to kill them. Yeah. So that was where we were, we were contributing a little bit of capital. It wasn't moving the needle one way or the other, but um, I had suggested maybe we try to systematize that just because the Wellcome Trust is a medical research foundation. So while we were only a dozen people, there were 600 people doing, um, making decisions about medical research grants that um, were really profound and had an impact on basic science research and medicine. Mm. So they had experts all over the world in every subject area. And so um, I thought maybe we could tap into that. So I used that as a way to kind of field new ideas, um, diligence opportunities that were coming to us, Mm. and just to systematize what we had. And with that, of course, came across a lot more opportunities for us to invest, Um, one of which was founding a company straight out of Johns Hopkins, which was really successful and a lot of fun. That's awesome. Sounds like a wild ride. So you were in London this entire time, so almost 10 years. Um, I was in London for five and then back in New York for the other five, but okay. working just for them. Just for them. Very cool. And so when you came back to New York, was there a reason you wanted to get back? I mean, I think being in London, you're originally from the US, right? So maybe you just want to get yep. back home, closer to family. You had enough time alone with your husband where it was like, okay, now we got to get going close yeah. to family. Been there, done that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we, had had, uh, we had two kids while we were there and um, we traveled all over some with them some before mm-hmm. and uh, my father unfortunately was really sick he had lung cancer and oh, it was sorry. um it was you know it was a good time to be 
back for my husband professionally because I think at some point you need to make a decision in your career about the relationships that you're building and whether you want to build those relationships long term in Europe or the US. And I think he felt that it was it was time for him. And it was also um, for me personally, um, it was it was a good time. Most of our investments at the Wellcome Trust and most of the funds that we were LPs in were based in the US anyway. Mm-hmm. So um, it didn't really disrupt my work. Um, although I think, you know, one of the things you wanted to focus on is transitions. It, it was a lot harder, and I appreciate this now, to kind of stay in the flow when you're not part of a, an office or an entity. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a bit challenging. What do, you, what do you mean by that specifically? So like when you're not, um, when you're, meaning when you're over here in New York and more, more people are there, it was hard to stay up to date or? Um, yeah, even though the people that I worked with, I, I had um, two analysts working with me at the Welcome Trust, so I sort of had to uh, coordinate with them. They were staying in the UK, um, but I wasn't as much part of the flow of information. Certainly locally, I didn't have as much face time, and I think professionally, if I had wanted to, to um, maintain or, or really make the most out of it, I would have needed to be in London maybe a week a month. Yeah, um, but I had two lot. little kids yeah. and was, was about to have a third. And so it w- was not going to work um, for me in that regard. I have to say, you know, I chuckle at the idea was just was kicking around an idea with a, a friend of mine mm-hmm. who's the chief medical officer for um, Cura Oncology, a very successful young biotech company. Mm-hmm. And um, she's been a friend of mine since college. She's navigated um, medicine. She has an MD and um, she has, has navigated a beautiful career for herself. And, and yet her, um, the thorn in her side is that she's viewed as technical and she wishes that she could be viewed more as an executive. Mm. And I, I said, well, you know, it, it's challenging to do everything, right? You know, I was very fortunate that I was able to work um, very much independently and, um, I had an office, but I had a ton of autonomy. I was basically my own boss. So I was able to raise kids and be there for them and very involved. Um, my husband's job involved some travel and a lot of time demands. So one of us was going to be, you be know, uh, on. And, did you have any um, help with nannies at all? Or did I, did I assume I did, with three? <laughs> I did. Yes. I had um, 10 years with the best nanny on the face of the earth who remains uh, like family. Mm-hmm. We, we always joke that she's the family we never had, but she, she really is family. And now my oldest son babysits for her baby. That's awesome. So <laughs> uh, yeah, but she was, she was everything um, and really made things happen. And was, it was very fluid because of her. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but I think I, I ultimately, you know, I think you make a trade-off, whether it's conscious or not. Um, there are a lot of demands on your time. I probably would have benefited from doing more networking um, and perhaps being more aggressive about transitioning either from the Welcome Trust to an established venture fund mm-hmm. or a corporate VC or something like that in, in terms of career path. But I was very interested in taking on an operating role. And I also really like the health. You were also though. I mean, you space. had just come back. You know, you were back for five years, but you had come back. Right. You had a good, like you said, the autonomy is a big deal when you have young kids. 
it's, it's a, a great really, kid. It's a really big deal. Like I know, cause if I didn't have this autonomy, right there. we would be really, we'd be in deep trouble. Like my wife has right. to go in and she's, she's a doctor. And so she's, she's going in all the time. Not now, but she was. And right. that flexibility of me being at home is just huge. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I can imagine. So, um, Speaking of physicians, I think it's a really good comparison. When you're a physician or you have a profession that you're able to provide a service with, mm-hmm. your your value is uh, is pretty constant. Um, yeah. You know, as long as you maintain your credentials. Mm-hmm. But for me, I felt felt at the time I'd really nailed it. I was able to manage a career and a family, and it's sort of like nailed it. But now what? Because mm-hmm. um, coming out of that, um, I, you know, I phased out after five years in the U.S. because there was somebody in London who had a lot of, he, he was primarily responsible for the venture capital relationships. Mm-hmm. And um, so we overlapped a lot. Yeah. And, um, and he was there. Think, it was the great financial crisis that happened. And you're not there. So yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I mean uh, it, was just, it was just inevitable. Like, yeah. You can see that coming. Right. <laughs> and, and so um, even though it was a great gig, it was, uh, you know, it had its time. And um, so I had been a bit spoiled and I, if I could do it again, I think I would have been, um, I would have benefited from having somebody with my, um, with some of my experience um, or some similar kind of path Mm -hmm. to guide me about where to spend time, who to network with, how to, how to think about what, you know, what skills I want to keep up or what networks to keep up so that I could maintain my um, expertise in a way that I would be able to leverage that into a new position. Mm-hmm. And um, what do you think those were for you looking back? If you had, what do you feel like you wish you had kind of kept up more besides the networking with certain people? Is there certain skills like actual the modeling and that type of stuff? Or do you feel like that wasn't really useful at the senior level at this point? Well, it was always very powerful to have a command of what was happening in terms of research trends in, in science mm-hmm. and medicine. So um, in the areas that I was interested in, um, there was probably some reading, maybe a few scientific conferences I could have gone to. Um, I could have um, more aggressively spent time with some of the technology transfer people that I'd come to know at mm-hmm. Hopkins, at Cornell, where I had a relationship. Um, and um, I think I would have stayed more um, maybe involved in some way as an advisor to a fund um, or at least maintained a little bit more closely relationships on a friendly basis with some of the people who were active investors in the sector so that I would just be in the know about what the trends were. And the, and there are fads. I mean, right now it's all about rare disease and um, it, it's, um, it's not necessarily the right move. Mm. Um, I think venture investors are a little lemming-like and um, <laughs> I, I I do also have to confess I was I was afraid to jump right into venture capital from the work that I had done in part because I didn't have faith that um, that all of those were great decisions that venture capitalists were out there making. It is dominated by men. There are a few wonderful women that I'd met along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt that in many cases, their involvement was somewhat superficial. And I really liked the sort of digging in deeper with each of the operating companies that I worked with. Um, 
and I, I think when I speak to some people now about venture, there is a sense that um, investors make their money on so, sort of the, the, the beginning aspect, not necessarily picking the right, picking the winners for the long term and developing products that change people's lives. It's about picking the one that you can turn into a tech play and get a great IPO valuation for and then get out. Yeah. And um, that, you know, it, it's easy to, to criticize, but there is quite a bit of that. That's, why do you think that's happened? Do you think, do you think it's just, just the way that unit economics work and being able, like everything has to go to the software and tech, tech play <laughs> or well, the big data you know, just, or AI, you know, everything's <laughs> AI or big data or, you know. Right. Well, I mean, I think AI and big data are very powerful tools. So um, I'm all for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just think, you know, there's always going to be tremendous pressure on generating returns. And in biotech, the returns take too long. And so the model doesn't really work for investors unless, I mean, for example, the company that we founded out of Hopkins, mm-hmm. I got, it, it got sold 15 years after we started that. So yes, it was successful, but was that really what the investors wanted? I don't know. What was so, their IRR? I'll tell you. Yeah. <laughs> or what was you know, their, yeah. I mean, it, it depends. But yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. It's a long incubation period. It can be, it can right. Be. And that was exceptional because it was just us and one other investor. So the return was spectacular, but it was, right. you know, we invested $26 million in the company returned you know, a valuation of over 700 million when it was bought, but it was yeah. like, I mean, that doesn't happen every day. And, you know, so many of these projects don't um, evolve as planned. Um, and the venture model, as I said, it doesn't really work well for biotech. It works extremely well for consumer based products and right. tech where, you know, you can, you can at least visualize revenue sometime in the, in the next, uh, you know, within the time frame of returning capital to your, uh, to your investors. So uh, one colleague of mine that I worked with at the Wellcome Trust went on to a very successful career in investing. um, And she was a GA and then um, is now starting her own fund. And her investment area is is in um, a field basically where they use technology to accelerate drug discovery and drug development. So there are a lot of ways to use technology in that. And the customers are pharma and biotech companies who have lots of capital and um, want to return faster so they can use this technology. So that makes much more sense for investors. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it was a combination of, it's a challenging sector. There's lots of pressure to return capital um, or at least prove some value sooner rather than later. So people will find ways to do that even if it's not the end game. Um, Question, aren't there certain types of funds for like biotech and I'm just not educated enough in BC where like the, the life cycles of the funds or the capital hold periods are just much longer or no? Um, not I'm not really. familiar with any, I think mostly these funds diversified okay. into, you know, the two different sectors for that purpose. But I, yeah. you know, I think it's always remained a challenge. So um, in the sector uh, funds morphed toward later stage or, uh, more um, consumer-focused or OTC-focused products, or uh, there was a, a trend toward medical devices, then a trend away from medical devices because they're on a shorter regulatory path. Um, okay. So, 
we've, we've been trying different ways around it, but mostly what's happened is the pharmaceutical industry drives most of that, the, the cost of innovation, but they don't want to take on so much risk. So they want, they don't want to license something in until it's been developed to the point where they're fairly certain it's not going to kill anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really, hopefully it's going to work. Um, but there's a, so there's really a gap in funding really good early stage ideas out of academia, which is mostly where they come from. Mm-hmm. Um, what's happened in the industry now, just sort of a side story, is the venture funds that have been really active and successful in healthcare um, have started sort of these skunkworks operations where they do very early stage founding of companies. So they have some of their own staff or people that are part of their immediate network. They license right out of academia and try to get programs funded and started internally. So um, flagship started flagship pioneering. Third Rock has a group that does that. Atlas has been doing this for some time. I think it's not obvious that um, returns are so easy to get mm-hmm. um, in, in these projects. And I think they are part of the way towards solving the problem. Um, and the so, problem being like the, the, just this gap in funding from the early stage academia to something that's from the bar, big pharma, not even touching that stuff because it's just too far fetched. Um, um, yeah. And that it's a really inefficient model for funding these projects. So mm-hmm. this kind of gets to what I'm doing now, but um, yeah. So yeah. Tell, tell us, tell the listeners what you're doing now and why, and what's uh, <laughs> okay. where you the value is. I thought it was fascinating when you told me. Oh, great. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Um, so we've seen all these, these venture funds, trying this new model out. And um, Bridget, who's, as I mentioned, my friend since college, a physician and um, a drug development professional, had, um, has also been an advisor at Yale for three or four years. So as an uh, entrepreneur in residence, she's come across a lot of scientific projects that she thought were pretty cool. She's been on an award panel evaluating projects for a couple of years now. And out of those, she found a handful, um, four or five, that she thought might be commercializable. And the the criteria that she set for herself, which was really when she approached me, was um, that these be projects that could be commercialized into a product, you know, within a reasonable time frame, and that they could actually get to where they have data to support them within that would be compelling to a pharma company within a three to five year time frame for less than $10 million. So those parameters are somewhat strict, but we weren't looking for specific therapeutic areas. Um, when Bridget and I got together and started looking at the four or five programs, we, we've we picked two that we really want to pursue and we're out raising money for those mm-hmm. um, based on the, the ability for those projects to get funded, to get um, to attract pharmaceutical company uh, licensing in the relatively near future. So they need to be in the right category. Uh, it needs to be a pretty big category. Mm-hmm. It needs to be a drug or product or platform that won't cost too much to develop because, you know, if it's a really expensive product, it's hard to profit. Um, and it needs to have, have some data behind it that's pretty compelling. And, and the scientists that she's, um, that Bridget has gotten to know are really very impressive. A lot of them have, um, you know, serious accomplishments behind them. Either they're, they're scholars in their areas of expertise or Howard Hughes investigators or 
you know, other, other recognition that show that they're really at the cutting edge of their fields. They're highly recognized. They run good research. Mm -hmm. And, um, so your fundraising well, to try and try and raise that with 10 million per, per idea kind of idea, you know, thought process. Well, that's what it amounts to. But what yeah. we, what we really thought was venture capital doesn't quite have this right. That, each time a company gets started based upon uh, a license from academia, they're looking to, to hire a team or maybe a small team, but they want a CEO, a chief medical officer, um, and some of these people are part-time because it's one project with you know, not too much to do at the initial stages. Mm -hmm. So you're, you probably need a medicinal chemist to come help you figure out how to make the, the compound, uh, and you need to run a series of studies, a lot of which can't be done in parallel. You know, you have to do some, so many things sequentially, yeah. especially when you're talking about establishing proof of concept, proof uh, that the mechanism makes sense. So you might have different animal models you have to test in, mm. and then getting it eventually to humans. But in order to do that, you either end up, and this is typical, hiring a team of good people who are all part-time, and so they're doing this for three or four companies at the same time. And this is actually what Bridget has been doing for the last couple of years until she was hired full-time by Cura recently. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so she really had a, a, a very up-close and personal experience with this. And so did our CFO, Ryan. Um, so he had been a um, head of finance at Alexion and another biotech company based in New Haven, which moved to Boston. Mm -hmm. He said, you know what, I have little kids. I'm not moving my whole family to Boston for this. I'm going to do some work like this, but for several companies until I figure out the next gig. Yep. Um, so the two of them had very similar lives and recognized that you end up with a really half-baked product. You, ha you have um, projects that are all being run part-time by different people, Mm -hmm. um, no one has the expertise they really need because they're trying to be a jack of all trades yeah. um, and also trying to conserve capital. And then if that project isn't going exactly as planned and the data don't look good, they're going to do whatever they can to keep that venture coming, that venture money coming until they find their next gig or figure out a new course correction to make that project work. So, um, and if they fail, then, you know, maybe they raised 40 million, but they've got to give 20 of it back or they don't do the, the second phase and they're all out of a job. Yeah. So the model that we've come up with is that our operating team has regulatory experience, drug development expertise and, and business development expertise. And we know how to run a project we certainly CROs are a very big part of this phase of de development, mm -hmm. but you really don't need a full management team for projects that are right out of academia that are still preclinical. So they're not in humans yet. And, but you would like to have everybody on the same page. You want them all to be aligned, all to be incentivized, all to be working on the same three or four projects mm -hmm. and really focused on maximizing the, the capital um, across these projects. So we thought, you know what? We should have a portfolio of projects. Mm -hmm. We should have a really high quality team. We shouldn't compromise on the quality of the people. We should just attract the best people, but keep them really busy with a handful of very attractive programs. And so that's the idea. It's really very simple, but, um, and there are a few teams that are trying to 
you're making sure you have enough projects to keep the best people busy in-house all at once and so that way you're able to get some leverage from the from that pool of experts right but if you're an investor in that rather than the next new thing startup yeah that's being backed by third rock not to use them in a negative way at all but (laughs) if if you are great and really smart um but if you're doing that you kind of got all your eggs in one basket and the management team also do so they're not going to make the same decision about the allocation of resources that our team would because if we start to see a signal that's not what we want maybe it's time to shut down that project and allocate the resources towards something more promising Mm -hmm. but um in the traditional model, you don't have the flexibility to do that. Interesting. Yeah, so you have more at-bats basically in your model from the same right. group of managers and experts. Group of experts. Right. And when you consider a 90% failure rate in preclinical, like it just doesn't make sense to do it any other way, which is yeah. why venture funds invest across many projects. But there are some commonalities that, you know, allow for you to leverage one team against a series of projects if, if you get them all at the right stage. So it sounds like you, throughout your career, you know, you've, you've gone more entrepreneurial now. Uh, yeah, and tell, tell me a little bit about kind of any advice you'd give before we call it any advice you'd give kind of to your younger self now looking back at everything that has transpired or to some of the younger listeners that are thinking of doing something similar, maybe interested in venture or, or what they should do. Um, well, one thing I've always said about venture, which is just more general, is that I think it's very hard to contribute to a venture investment team without having some operating experience um, because I don't think you can relate as well. And I think you don't have the same gravitas, the same, you know, understanding underneath the hood of what needs to happen. It's not, it's not that different from the challenge I think consultants have when they're going out and consulting companies that sell products and they really don't appreciate the sales process being selling is the most important aspect of so many businesses. Mm-hmm. And yet being a salesman is not viewed as sort of the kind of thing that a Harvard MBA would do. Um, and, and yet I think it's such a vital part of, of business. So um, I think in the same vein, it's really hard to have any credibility inside of an in- investment organization. Um, PE is completely different in the sense that there's so much more analytical rigor um, and financial analysis associated with it. So that's a different career path, probably a really good experience for people along the same lines as sort of a a banking uh, analyst training. Anything you would have done differently besides, I remember you'd said earlier when the, well, you wish you had networked a little bit more, anything else? Yeah. Well, I think related to that on the venture side, if you're, let's, let's say I started a company or, or was involved in a few um, and then became a partner in a venture fund. I, I think you would certainly want to have, um, you want to have seniority in a, in a venture firm because it's really not fun unless you're helping to call the shots. Mm-hmm. You can't really call the shots if you haven't been there. And um, I think I would have taken um, a senior operating role Uh, like the one that I did at law.com, but I think I would have done one in my sector um, before doing anything else. And the I don't want to call it a mistake, but I think I got drawn into the healthcare information space because of the opportunity that I had at the time uh, working with Norman and another friend and former colleague. Um, But it took me out of the loop 
of what I had spent so much time doing. Hmm. Um, so I would have stayed closer to investors, I think, um, and uh, to the trends in terms of uh, where the markets are, what was getting funded, what technologies were, were hot and potentially going to contribute to the growth of the sector like AI. Um, and maybe gotten closer to one of those uh, one of those startups or funds who are investing in those. So I'm not providing you know a, a clear path, but I think you want to have expertise at a deep level. And when you go to work for one company, you're drawn into the trenches and your ability to kind of see what's happening around in the world, it, it, you know, it's compromised. It, it's just you have to decide consciously: is that the trade-off you want to make? And um, are you developing a skill set that you can then transfer to your next opportunity? So if you're running the company and you're doing the fundraising and you're successful at it and you're going to grow the company, that's one thing. The startup that I went to work for didn't have a great, um, didn't have a great business model. It became a platform for the two founders to do consulting. And so I left, but I, ended up doing something else in the healthcare IT space, which is, was fascinating, but um, also was really outside the biotech space. And I probably would have been better served to have stayed you know, closer to that because that was where my expertise yeah. was. For sure. Makes sense. I think it's always tough when you find an exciting or interesting opportunity that may be outside of what you've done traditionally. You can chase yeah. that and then get sucked into the trenches, like you said, where you don't really aren't developing the skill sets or whatnot. You're just kind of just day to day doing the work um, and you look up five years later <laughs> and you say, wait yeah. a second, you know, it's time to do something new. And uh, yeah, for sure. I, I feel like I fall into a little bit of that pattern as well here with WSO. I've, I've looked, I looked up and it's 10 years full time on this. Thing. <laughs> it's going wow. on. Yeah, but it's fun. I, I am learning every day. So that's good. Um, I, I think that's the best thing. You know, you can, if you can say that you're, then you're probably doing the right thing, but it, it it's, kind of comforting for me to hear that because I think, you know, you're also able to have the flexibility to spend time with your family and mm -hmm. that's important too. I think no one can predict for you whether your kids are going to kind of need you in a, a certain way, whether it's being there for them physically or being there for them emotionally or, mm -hmm. you know, helping them dodge a, a bad situation with a, you know, kid around the block. It, uh, you can't really quantify that, but there is a lot of value to that. And, and um, I think the fact that you've spearheaded this and you've been driving it is really great. And that in and of itself is, uh, you it's know, fun. an unparalleled experience, right? Yeah, that's fun. Yeah, I can't complain. I'm very lucky. So, um, well, Julie, I really appreciate you taking the time at your day to share your path and your wisdom and I think people will enjoy hearing about it. So thank you. <laughs> Oh, thank you. It's really fun. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, Patrick at WallStreetOasis.com. Until next time.